You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, I'll be discussing the case of a young father who was beaten to death at a fair in front of his friends. And the case went unsolved. Decades later, his daughter's searching for answers and justice in the case. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a moment to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the murder of my family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurdermyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam or on Facebook at facebook.com slash T-M-I-M-F podcast. If you'd like to support The Murder of My Family and get VIP access to things like ad-free listening, early preview episodes, and bonus content of not only this show, but for every other podcast on the Abject Network of Indie Podcast, consider subscribing to the show with an Abject Insider subscription through Apple Podcast. For only $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year, you'll unlock a variety of listener benefits and you'll be supporting the show in the process. Your support is greatly appreciated. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note, please support any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. Today's case is one that seems like it should have been solved shortly after it happened. Instead, Christy Joyner, our guest today, is fighting for answers and justice in her father's murder, 38 years later. Sadly, Christy has no memories of her father, Jimmy Townsend, because he was murdered when she was only four weeks old. James Allen Townsend Jr., or Jimmy as he was known to friends and family, was born on December 20, 1971 to Rita Gal Townsend and James Townsend Sr. He lived in Monroe, Louisiana, about 100 miles east of Shreveport. Jimmy was an only child, and he attended Riser Junior High. He was incredibly athletic and played multiple sports for his school, including baseball and football. He also enjoyed bowling, fishing, and hunting. Not long before his death, he had taken up boxing. It seemed that whatever Jimmy put his mind to, he could excel at. But as busy as Jimmy was, he wasn't immune to the struggles and temptations that teenagers face. Like many teenage boys in the 1980s, Jimmy experimented with marijuana, and he became sexually active. He got involved with a girl who was a few years older than him, and before they knew it, she was pregnant. Being a parent's hard work, and full of challenges, and it's likely that this young couple with a baby on the way had no way of knowing what to expect or how they would deal with it but they prepared as best as they could with the help of their families. And in the summer of 1985, they welcomed their daughter, Christy Jane. But before Jimmy could really experience fatherhood for any length of time, his life would end. Jimmy was still a child himself at the time of his murder. He was just 13 years old, an eighth grader, on September 28, 1985, when he went to the Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi Fair that was held at the Monroe Civic Center in Monroe, Jimmy's hometown. Jimmy and two of his friends were on the east side of the Civic Center in a secluded and quiet spot where they had stepped away to smoke a joint together. 
And that's where they ended up having an argument or an altercation with another group of boys who outnumbered them. Jimmy was scrappy and using his boxing knowledge, defended himself, hitting one of the boys that was attacking him. But the three boys were no match for the much larger group of about seven boys. So they decided to run heading in three different directions. The pursuing group focused on Jimmy and chased him down and quickly caught up to him, beating him viciously. They pummeled him and when he fell to the ground, they kicked and stomped him repeatedly. Fearing that they would be caught or identified, the group of attackers fled the scene. Jimmy's friends, meanwhile, had found help, and brought them back to where Jimmy had been beaten, finding Jimmy partially hidden under a car. First responders tried to do CPR, and Jimmy was barely alive. He was rushed to the hospital, but sadly, he didn't survive. A medical exam at the hospital revealed that Jimmy was so badly beaten that his organs couldn't be donated. Jimmy's official cause of death was listed as multiple intracranial injuries. The injuries were similar to those seen in what is referred to as shaken baby syndrome. Jimmy's tragic death rocked his family, and in particular his mom. She was never the same afterwards. Police investigating the murder learned that the attack on Jimmy wasn't the only fight that night. Another boy named Jimmy, Jimmy Murphy, was seriously injured by unknown assailants, but he survived. The assailants in Jimmy Murphy's attack matched the description of the attackers in Jimmy Townsend's case. The investigation focused on a local street gang whose members ranged from roughly 15 to 19 years old. It's not clear why Jimmy was attacked, but it seemed his murder was gang-related and was possibly race-related. Jimmy was Caucasian, and the group of young men that attacked him were all African-American. The time following Jimmy's murder was one where locals were on edge, fearing retaliation or racial problems. The police did their best to calm tensions and find the people responsible, but they didn't make much headway. Multiple business owners in the area wanted to donate $1,000 each in an effort to create a much larger reward fund that would exceed $50,000. But reportedly, the chief of the police department declined the offer and refused to allow a coordinated larger public fund. There were several smaller rewards, but they didn't lead to any tips. There seemed to be differing opinions on what amount of money it would take to make someone talk. But in the end, no one talked. Maybe they were too afraid to. Jimmy's friends were able to give the police descriptions of the murderers, and the authorities had the names of some suspects. Both witnesses picked the same individual out of a photo lineup. This suspect was also a minor at the time and ended up hiring an attorney. It's unknown exactly why no charges were ever pursued, but it's been heavily speculated that the suspects were related to members of the Monroe Police Department and that some kind of corruption allowed Jimmy's killers to walk free, continuing to live their lives as free men. In the decades since Jimmy was killed, various rumors have circulated and some names of potential suspects are bounced around, but the case remains unsolved to this day. As I mentioned, Jimmy's daughter Christy was just a month old when Jimmy was killed. Christy's mother, who was only 16 when she gave birth, was overwhelmed at the thought of trying to raise a baby on her own and decided the best thing for Christy would be to put her up for adoption to a family that could take good care of her. Thankfully, Christy's adoption still allowed her to see Jimmy's family, so they were able to have a part of Jimmy in their lives. As most adopted kids growing up do, Christy began to ask questions about her birth parents and what happened to them. News that her young father was beaten to death didn't sit well with Christy. It bothered her that she never got a chance to really know her father, and that multiple people had gotten away with his cold-blooded murder. Since then, it's been Christie's mission to see a resolution in this case. In a Change.org petition she started to reinvestigate the case, she called Jimmy, quote, the first person to want to protect her for the rest of her life. Even though he was only 13, he was ready to be there for her and protect her, take care of her, and for four short weeks he did. But then, like almost every other teenager, he went out for a night of fun at the annual fair. The one difference between Jimmy and the other kids there that night is that he didn't make it home alive. Christy, as an adult, still lives and works in the area where her father was killed all those years ago. She's a hairdresser and even believes that one of her father's killers was brazen enough to come get a haircut from her, knowing full well that she was the daughter of the young man he killed. That situation was understandably difficult for Christy. Both of Jimmy's parents have since died without seeing anyone convicted of their son's murder. James Townsend Sr. passed away in 2008, 
and Gail followed in 2012. Today, all Christie wants is for her father's case to be reinvestigated with 2024 technology and tactics, fresh eyes, so to speak. Even if charges can't be brought, whether suspects have passed away or nothing can be proven, it's still not too late for answers. It's not too late for Christie to feel like she took care of her father, who was so ready to take care of her. Christie has personally offered a reward of at least $1,000 for information that can help secure a conviction. If you have any tips regarding Jimmy Townsend's murder, you can call Crime Stoppers of North Delta at 318-388-CASH or the Monroe Police Department at 318-329-2600. I sat down with Christie to discuss her father's tragic and senseless murder and how it shifted the course of her entire life. That conversation coming up in just a moment. Hi, Christy. Thank you for coming on the Murder of My Family to discuss your father, Jimmy's case. Hello. How are you? Uh, I'm good. And, and thank you for coming on and, and talking about something, you know, a case that has, I'm sure, greatly affected your life and something you've been trying to seek answers for for a long time um your father's case is still unsolved and i know that all these years later you haven't let the case get forget forgotten uh you kept it sort of out there we're going to talk about your efforts to get justice but before we get into what happened and what we know what we don't know can you tell me a little about your father's life and what he was like bearing in mind uh, as we'll get into that you were so young when he died, he was young when he died, that you didn't really have a chance to know him. Can you sort of tell I, us what you've been able to learn about him and, and sort of get to know him? Okay. Yeah, he was uh, He was very young. He was 13 years old and um, with a child. Um, I was one month old um, when he passed away. And that alone is hard and to ask questions about him and to know about him was very hard too, because I'd never got to meet him, uh, never got to see him hold him or anything like that. Um, but he was, he was a very avid sports player. He was in, he dabbled in a little bit of everything. Um, baseball. I mean, he was so good with baseball, all stars, traveling ball, all of that. He, I mean, he could have went pro um, to, to um boxing um the boxing here we have a boxing center here and he started picking up boxing i would say the last two years of his life um and i mean from the sports way when i say football baseball all the sports that you can think of riding his bikes uh, i mean he was just a he was a kid he was a kid uh just being a kid doing kid things and he lost his life for it um at a at, at such a young age um the whole me coming into this world i'm really grateful for especially knowing how young he was um especially knowing that um he was gone a month later so i'm here for a reason and i have I was, uh, I was adopted when I was 11 months old, um, so I really didn't get to ask questions or even know about this really until I was about 16 years old, till I started, you know, getting a little bit more educated on this. Um, but the last two years um, to four years, I have been going back and forth with the DA, not the DA, the, um, with the police department trying to get his case back open, and nobody really wanted to to help me or to open it back up. So I just felt defeated for so many years before. And I finally found a detective who was like, yeah, I'm going to look into it. I, I want to know what happened. I want these people brought to justice as well. And that was probably about a year and a half, a uh, year and a half ago. And I have been meeting with the detective weekly basis, emails, phone calls, going up there and seeing him, uh, letting him know that I'm not going anywhere. And this is not going anywhere. And I want those guys involved, brought to justice, some type of justice, even if it's, um, you know, their names being released or just, I just want them brought to justice. 
<laughs> I yes. want them in jail um, as they should have been back then in 1985. Yeah, it's not too much to ask to want justice. I mean, your your father, although he was just 13, you know, still old enough to be a father, but he still had basically his entire life ahead of him. And then obviously there's a ripple effect because, you know, that affected your life going forward and, you know, everything else is sort of tied together. Um, I, I just want to recap. So your, your birth mother was also young, a little bit older than, than your father was, but was. Um, as far as you know, were they sort of nervous about, you know, it's, it's tough, you know, it's yeah. tough raising kids, <laughs> let alone doing it at some, at so, such a young age, were they, nervous were they overwhelmed was this something that they felt they just wouldn't be able to do is that why you were adopted in the first place um well i was um they they were they were both nervous of course as anybody would be at that age um my dad being 13 and my um my biological mom being 16 they didn't know what you know what to do my dad was scared he you know he was he was scared of that. That probably was the only thing that he was scared of at the time was becoming a father at 13. He was in junior high. They both were in junior high. I couldn't imagine having a kid at junior high. And it, like you said, it, a ripple effect on everyone involved. And it most definitely had a ripple effect on me and not only me, but my, my grandmother, his mom, um, so bad, so bad. Um, it, it really took a lot of time from her to heal from that, um, for sure. And a lot of people, his friends and his family, there were so many people that loved him and that wants justice as well. So he was definitely loved by many. He sure was. And, and definitely missed. And uh, as a child growing up in an ado adopted family, were you, did you know from an early age what exactly had happened and who your father was, or is it something you learned later on about who he was and what happened to him? It's, it's kind of a funny story, um, about me finding out how I was adopted. Um, I, like I said, I was adopted when I was 11 months old. Uh, I did not find out until I would say at two different ages, um, when I was seven, but then my I didn't really understand any of that. So it like went in one ear out the other. My mom told me this story. She went into a room full of all these little girls and she saw me and she wanted me. That was the story that I was fed. Not that was the story that was given to me when I was younger. And then I got a little bit older and realized that my, my grandmother was younger than my mom. And I'm like, this, what's going on here? So I, I definitely asked more questions then, and that's when um, everything was told to me about his death and how it happened. And at that point, I could definitely tell you that I I didn't feel like a child anymore. Um, I felt robbed, abandoned. I was embarrassed uh, for a little bit because one of my I wouldn't even call her a friend. She she told me out of spite, out of hatefulness to to embarrass me um in front of a bunch of people that I was adopted and at that time I thought you know it was embarrassing for me um but I did little research and asked my asked the little questions that I could but I didn't really like talking about it and then my grandmother she didn't really like talking about the um all the horrible things that happened she she told me all the good things like about a smile and how much thing features that we we share and and it, that's what I kind of grew up on until I became more of an adult and more, I would say my late twenties, thirties. Um, that's when I started going to the police station and asking them to reopen the case. And I just, I never got anywhere. I never got anywhere until about a year and a half ago. And the, the whole adoption, I was still able to be, in my, my grandmother's life, um, she was my grandmother and it was, it was hard because as a child, I remember going to a gravesite, and I didn't really understand that that was my dad because I had a dad at home, my adopted dad. And it was, it was very tough. And 
you know, as a little child, you don't really understand too many things, you know, then. And, and I just wish that I wouldn't have, I, I know now that being adopted is not nothing to be embarrassed about at all. Um, it just means that more people love you and the ones that, the one that gave me up for adoption loved me enough, you know, to give me a better home, a better environment and a safe place because with her was not it. So I'm very thankful for that. And I, I support adoption. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of, a lot of good adoption stories of people that, you know, something, you know, sometimes parents just feel that their life will be better for their child if they, they can put them in a home that's going to give them all the support they need. So definitely a, a good thing there, but you know, all kids have struggles or th questions about who they are, where they come from. And I imagine your situation was just a little bit more tricky than, you know, every other kids that you probably know. Yes, sir. It, it was, it was very different. Uh, my, my mother, my mother and father that adopted me were 44 and 45 years old. Um, so I had a little bit older mom and it was, it was different. It was different, challenging and, but I wouldn't change it at all. Um, as far as my adoptive parents, I would change the reason, the reason for me being adopted. I believe that if, if Jimmy wasn't taken so, so long, my dad, um, his name's Jimmy, <laughs> but, um, if he wasn't taken, taken from us so soon, I, I don't believe that I would have had that adoption life um, because his his death really took hold of my grandmother um, so bad that she had to do a couple years um, in an institution because of this. And it was her only son and I was the only granddaughter. And while she was in the institution, um, I was being adopted and she had no control, no say, no nothing. Um, so having that little, knowing that she, things would have been different, you know, if she would have been, if he would have been here and, or if she would have been a little bit better, you know, my life, my life could have went three different ways. I see it, you know, it could, I could have had three different roads and, but, you know, this is the road that I'm on now and I'm on the road to, for justice for him because it, there's just too much, too much things that should have should have been done back then and it wasn't so let's talk about as an adult now you're you're free to do whatever you want you know get involved go back to the police and say hey you know what happened here all these years ago when you first decided to go like full speed into this what did you know to that point and then what did you learn were there any new things that you learned when you talked to the police? Uh, the first, uh, when I first started going to the police, they didn't believe that um, I was his daughter. I had to pretty much kind of show proof um, that I was his daughter in order for them to talk to me. I, and I get it. He was 13. Um, when I was, when I was a teenager, they told me that he was beaten to death at our local fair, our Arklamas fair by a gang um, over, over drugs. He, he literally fought for his life that night. And that was the big part of the only thing that I knew when I was a teenager growing up. Um, I didn't know any of this, you know, what happened prior to it. I didn't happen to know anything as far as after. I just knew he was, he was beat to death by a gang. And the gang's name was the Bird Jones Lane Gang. I knew that. And I just knew I, 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 I knew I had to do something whenever I got older, look into more research, do more details and, and things of that nature. It wasn't really until I lost my memo because she kept everything. She didn't, it's not that she didn't like talking about him. It's the fact of how it, you know, he left us and, um, it was hard for her, so I didn't bring it up too much to her. But after I lost my memo, I found a box full of her research 
and things for my about my dad's case and I went over it and I mean I was <laughs> crying over all the things that my memo knew that I didn't know and if I would have known you know I probably would have went a little bit harder on some people you know I would have raised more pain back then like I'm having to do now but I, I you know all things happen for a reason so I'm gonna go with that um as far as the reason why it's taken 38 years for our police department and our justice system um, to open this case back up. Yeah, it's got to be tough, too, for you to sort of go in after the fact and sort of yeah. say, OK, I'm piecing together everything that happened basically when I was a baby um, all those years ago. Um, and the and for the police that are now working the case that weren't working it back then, they sort of got to do the same thing. They've got to go dive into this case sort of fresh eyes um yes i guess before we get too far ahead on on what's going on now and what's happened since you got involved can you sort of go back and as far as you understand it from all the details and and everything can you walk us through what happened at that fair in uh september 1985 yes i can um i could probably give you a, a play-by-play it's played in my head so many times <laughs> um my dad was enjoying the fair, the carnival rides, um, the games with his friends, like any other kid would do. I've talked to so many people saying that I saw him that night. We hung out, we rode a ride together. Uh, man, I miss him, you know, and him riding rides. And it's getting to be pretty late that evening. And our fair had this thing called Midnight Madness. And it's where they stay open past 12. And it was like, all the kids wanted to be there because it's past their bedtime, you know, it's, um, but my, my grandmother was coming to pick him up at 1230. He was supposed to meet her at the gate and, um, him and his two friends, uh, their names were Shane and Anthony. Um, they went back behind the fair where it was a little bit more darker and secluded by what's like the farmer market now that's butted up to our civic center where our fair was held and they they were smoking a joint um you know some kids did it back then you know it's 1985 they were smoking a joint and um all of a sudden there's this big old group that started work walking towards them and they walked up to him and said do y'all want to you want to buy this dime sack and they said no nah, man we're good see we have a little and they were like, how about we make you buy it? And that's when my dad said no again. And the way that they were standing, it was my dad on the end and then his two friends to his right. And the gang came up in front of him. And I'm guessing one of the guys, my dad was the biggest of his friends, the tallest, the biggest, um, had muscles because of boxing and baseball, just all the sports. That guy walked up and punched my dad because my dad smarted off to him and my dad punched him back. And when that happened, um, hit my dad's two friends ran away in one direction and my dad ran in another direction and they followed my dad. And my dad was running so, so fast. He was trying to climb a fence to get away from them. And they, they pulled him back down and they literally beat him to death. He was fighting from his life. He was getting hit from all the way around his body, his head, his face, his arms. Everything is getting hit because he is surrounded. He's like inside of this circle and they are like, just back and forth with him. Um, and then, of course, when he drops to the ground, um, they started kicking him. And so bad to where his kidneys were in pieces uh, by the coroner report. Um, after they realized what they did, they dragged him and put, put him underneath the vehicle so nobody could find him. And by that time... I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 no. Go ahead. 
um, by that time, his friends that ran in the other direction, they did run to get help. At least they did that. Um, by time, uh, two of his other friends go back there looking for him before the, the police and before the fair workers and all of them got back there. They were looking for him. And it was dark. It was so dark and just like a, as one of the, one of the guys, one of his best friends, Mark said, it was an eerie feeling. You felt like they were still watching that they were out there somewhere, but you couldn't see because it was so dark. And then that's when, um, the cops came up and, uh, everything and they, uh, they had to do CPR on him and they rushed him to the hospital. Um, and at that time he was put on a ventilator, um, to help him breathe. Um, if, because if, if not, I mean, he would have, they put him on a ventilator. So my papa who was working, um, up North could get back down here to see him, to say their goodbyes, because there was nothing left of him, even if, even if the fight wasn't as extreme as extreme as it was his, his um, death certificate says it's that the victim had been involved in an altercation. It's a homicide and he had multiple intracranial injuries and a little further uh, depth into the corner report is uh, like findings from shaken baby syndrome. And um, like I said, his kidneys were in pieces. Um, and also, I'm guessing the final blow was uh, well, was when someone stomped on the back of his neck and dislocated his spinal from his cranial. Um, and yeah, um, after after that, there was hours and hours of investigation, talking to witnesses and. Um, I guess starting the, starting the, you know, to work a murder case because that's exactly what it turned out to be. And, um, those guys that gang, um, they left him, they left him for dead. They were looking for him, um, that night. And, um, and how I know that is through the research, um, through my memos research that I found and things that I have gathered in the past year and a half. And it that just doesn't sit well with me, uh, knowing that and that nothing was done back then. And what did they have to go on? Uh, you know, obviously there were a couple witnesses or when this happened, his friends. Um, did they get descriptions? How many people were there? And, and what was the name of this gang again? The name of the gang was Burr Jones Lane, Lane Gang. Um, there were seven guys total, um, and there was three known witnesses, and there was also also a, a homeless man that was um, drunk. Um, he, the, he gave his statement, but they d couldn't use it because he was belligerent, and uh, they didn't. I don't know why. I, I don't know why they did some of the things they did back then, but this is what we have to work with now. Is what I've been told they um the the few witnesses uh that came forward gave descriptive um informa information and names that coincided with my dad's friends um statements my dad's friends did a uh, lie detector test and they did a photo lineup and both boys because they were boys at the time separate rooms they picked out the same guy and they pulled in um several several people in um one of the guys actually confessed to it that night and um, there's a newspaper clipping saying that a 17 year old was booked for it but then later released um because he recanted his statement um i'm um, don't know exactly why he recanted his statement. I, all I can go off of is theory. My theory is a uh, lawyer came in and told him that they, you know, they didn't really have anything or this and that, or 
his rights wasn't read to him, or maybe that he was, because he was 17, a parent wasn't involved. But I don't think that was the case because 17, you can be tried as an adult at 17. And most of the, the gang members were between 17 to 19 years old. And um, the reason why uh, two, two of the witnesses, one of them was a girlfriend for one of the gang members. And the other one that came forward, um, she basically came forward for the uh, reward. There was a $10,000 reward back then. But um, then she later said that it was all a lie. But she can't say that it was a lie because the things, the the names and the stories and how every, how she said everything was too descriptive. And the names matched up with what they already had. But what can you do with a witness that says you lied and I don't know anything about it? You know, so you, you have to let, I guess, let them go. And I guess they, uh, at that point, they didn't. They didn't want to pursue this case because it was one of the biggest cases that they would have to deal with. Uh, maybe didn't want to bring um, controversial verses with the, the whole blacks and whites and a fight and didn't want to cause more because it was it was crazy right after that. Um, from what I've heard, since I was a baby. Yeah, they uh, they brought him in and everything, even the guy that confessed even listed another guy's name and um that guy was brought in and yeah I have a list of names as well um and I have talked them over with my detective and it's 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 to the point to where like I guess now we're we're about to see what the DA is going to give us. We know what the DA did last time. So we're going to see what this DA does. That'd be frustrating to have like a list of names yeah. and, you know, witnesses yeah. and still not have enough to where an arrest could have been made by this point. It was enough for an arrest to be made. It was enough for, for things. Um, but all I keep hearing um, from my detective is I don't know why they did the things that they did back then. I I don't know why they handled this the way that they did. I see I see this case very doable back then, is what my detective has told me now. So that makes me question the process, the investigation, everything from from the cops coming in, even Metro coming, having to come in because drugs was involved. Um, something happened, and that and that the reason why it couldn't be moved forward because there was there was enough there was enough evidence. We had two two witnesses you know, that seen them. We had two of my guy, two of my dad's friends that seen them. There was enough to put these guys in jail. I mean, we had one that confessed. Like what? So what happened, you know, back then? Um, but like I said, we have to deal with what we got now. So I'm not uh, I, I get louder every day if that makes any sense with my dad's case because uh, I'm not going to, I got on a loop, you know, they kind of gave me like a loop um, of, well, just be patient. You know, at the end of the day, we still want justice. Um, but I still can't trust law enforcement just yet, you know, um, because of the things that I know from the beginning yeah you know it's the the chief of police it's crazy crazy man crazy man he stopped uh the reward like i said before there was a reward for ten thousand dollars um award for the killers um and it got 
it got so bad that the chief of police had you stop taking in donations because the money was getting up so high that people were just calling in and calling in. And it was so much that the police couldn't handle. And let, let me go ahead and say that this gang was also a big threat to the Monroe Police Department as well because they were they were scared. The Monroe Police Department was scared, um, especially back then. You know, it was a lot different than now. Um, of this gang, what, you mean? Yes, yes, of 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 the gang. <laughs> yeah, they were. I know. Um, it in the one of the newspaper articles it says that um, that one person held the key to the murder investigation, and that that he hopes that she will call back. She called the Crime Stoppers um, with uh, some information, which led to. Um, and I just found this out last week. Um, it led to a, a confident a confidential informant bringing her in to talk with the cops. And her giving her statement um, to where the next day, literally, these these women, the next day, they were like, a lie, a lie. That's, that's not true. It didn't happen. Because they were scared. Sure. They were scared of what could happen to them if they opened their mouth. My my dad's friends, like the the. The kids that he went to school with, their parents were so scared for them, thinking that they would try to retaliate and come and, you know, kill their kids like they did my dad. And they all, like, moved schools, and there's just, it, it affected so many people. Not only me, but but so many people, for sure. Yeah, these and, kinds um, of cases are just they have tentacles that sort of reach out and <laughs> go in every different direction. Yes, yes, every every direction you can think of. Now, I know it's it, it's a challenge because this case is what I'm not good at math, but thirty five years that's coming 30, up on thirty eight years. Thirty eight years. Okay, so you've got a case that's this old, um, and obviously witnesses you know forget stuff they can die off people are afraid to talk but you know one thing it seems like could potentially help this case is physical evidence you know, maybe even dna um do you know if the clothing and stuff was that was uh your, your father was wearing when he was killed you know they have that stuff in evidence because that could have the potentially the dna of some of the people yes the, i I agree. Um, when I first uh, reached out to my detective and was in communication, that was the only thing that I cared about. Do we have the evidence? Has it been entered into CODIS? Um, where's the evidence? Have you seen it? Have you put, you know, have you seen it with your own eyes, not just hear about it? And at the beginning, that's when I was, when I told that we didn't have any evidence that it was lost in a fire. And you talk about shattered. I was shattered because I was like, oh, my gosh, like we have nothing like we have nothing but hope that these witnesses will talk again. Months later, months, months later, um, I get an email saying that he he does, in fact, have the evidence. And I'm like, wow, well, you didn't. And you did now. I'm glad. I'm thankful. So, yes, sir, he does have his uh, his clothes uh, and everything that was uh, around him at that time. Um, but being that it happened in two separate locations, um, what he had on him at the first location wasn't at the second location. Um, and going back to that, the fire, um, so supposedly the evidence locker had a fire back in 2012, I believe. Um but it did not affect any of my dad's evidence. So I am thankful for that. Um, as far as what good news. Yes, it, it is good news. Um, I, I don't think it's been tested. I don't think it's been uh, entered into CODIS. Um, one, because it's, it's been cold um, Two, there hasn't been um, any approval for uh, money to be spent on this case. Uh, even my detective told me that he was doing it 
working, you know, looking over and working this case on his own free time um, until I, when I turned in, um, I turned in my FOIA, uh, FOIA, I'm sorry. <laughs> I never know if I can say that right. But my, FOIA, my yeah. best request. Um, and when I did that, that's when, because I, I only had, I think he had to give me a response within like 14 days. And when I did that, it took some time and he, that's when I got played the loop. I was on a loop. Um, and that's, that's how I can explain that. He, um, they made the case active, which I was very happy about, which the case should have been active, you know, just it's not cold anymore. So I, I was very happy about that. But in, in that, it kind of puts my FOIA uh, request at, on hold because an active case, I can't, I can't get um, his case. Um, but um, I actually had to school my detective on the FOIA. Um, anything after, if there, if a case has not been listed, uh, any suspects has not been listed or they do not proceed on pressing charges on anyone. Um, the victim's families can present the FOIA request. And if approved, I will get his whole entire case file. And, and I'm okay with that. I want justice more than anything, but it, you know, I just don't know about the, the justice system, if it's going to work for us. Um, if they're going to, be for us or against us, um, you know, because you never know with uh, 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 officials, you know. Yeah. So it, either way will be great. Yeah. And and do you know if any of the people that were allegedly part of this gang are some of them still around as far as you know? The crazy thing about that, um, all the gang members are still alive. Now the cops that work that worked my dad's case have all died off. Um, the, the chief of police, um, back in 1985, uh, Willie Buffington is still alive. He's about one of the only, well, I say one of the only ones that's not true. Um, there's another, there was another, uh, cop that worked my dad's case, um, that did the crime scene photos and took photos of him and all of that he's still alive as well so there's like there's just a handful of people that's still alive and and that it it is went to another detective he actually pulled the case out and he just got buried with other cases and he couldn't do anything about it and you know a case gets on top of another case and you just you you know it, it dust starts um Forming, and that's what happened to my dad's case up until about a year and a half ago. Yeah, and but I think police, they, as, a, as a rule, they they sort of look at the freshest, easiest cases to solve, and sort of put the older, tougher ones behind the other ones. Um, but see that start that, piling up, right? And see, but that's the thing. My detective said this case is very, very doable. So I don't know if it, like, it literally, this case was handed to my detective on a silver platter, everything. And that's, that's, that's the crazy thing. These gang, these gang members are still alive uh, and still in my hometown. Um, they walk around. I've, I've scoped them out on Facebook. <laughs> uh, Got to be tough yeah. to know that the, the people that may be involved in this, some of them are still right there. You know, very, just very walking tough. around out in public and, you know, there's really nothing you can do. Very tough. I, I actually had one of the guys um, come and sit in uh, at my job in my chair. I'm oh. a barber, so I cut hair um, and he came in and I normally don't do ethnic uh, hair, but he was very, very persistent on me cutting his hair and I immediately knew who he was when he walked in my door um, because he was bow-legged. The guy that hit punched my dad, the first punch was bow-legged. I immediately knew who he was because I went to the junior highs and high schools to get uh, yearbooks so I can match who, what they look like back then and what they look like right now. Um, so yes, this, that was, that was one of the guys and 
that that altercation was very very weird for me because he changed his story two times while sitting in my chair and then made it a point to tell me where he was from and the funny thing about it is our the chief of police back in 1985 is from the same town and if they don't have your ears tingling, I don't know why. Yeah. Do you do you think he did? I mean, did he seem to know who you were, or did this just come up as a random conversation? And then he you know, knew who he, I was. Okay. He knew who I was, and it wasn't until, um, I would say mid haircut that he realized he knew that I knew who he was as well, hmm. and. And I know a lot of people have asked me, like, how could you have cut his hair and not, you know, and, and how, how could you have just cut his hair? And frankly, I don't know how I did it either. <laughs> one, I'm not a person to inflict pain on anyone. Two, he was strong and not strong enough. I, I'm, I'm going to say um, ballsy enough to come to my shop. I I had to grow some as well and let him sit in my chair and, and find out what exactly. But the moment that he left, you, you talk about I broke down. I did. I was I have been somewhat paranoid ever since. <laughs> oh. Having to look over my shoulders. Yeah. And that's tough. Uh, you know, this isn't a case where there's no name, there's no face, there's no leads. I mean, it seems like here you have some potential persons of interest, some suspects, um, and, and to see that they're still walking around and, and eventually sitting in your chair, getting a haircut. It's just, um, very frightening. Yeah. Very frightening. But I, you know, my daddy was a fighter and, um, I got a lot of his traits and I, I am too a fighter. I'm fighting for him and for myself because, my life has been just a like a story, you know, like a bad story type of thing. And um, I just I want justice. I won't I want justice so bad, especially for them to to think that they could just come wherever they want to. It's not it's not cool. And if they have listed suspects, then they should be named. I feel like everybody should know who they are. Because so many people, you know, back in 1985, we don't have the technology. Um, they didn't have the technology back then as we do now. You know, like right now we're on this this little call. They they had to wait for the news or a newspaper to come out or by word of mouth. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people want justice that thought that they actually got justice back then. You know, the people that was at the fair uh, seeing it you know, on the news or something, you know, they all thought, not all of them, but most of them thought that, you know, justice was, was already brought, but yeah. Well, let's just hope that, you know, for your sake, that it's not too late and, you know, some physical evidence is there and in, in that clothing, um, you know, you still have potential witnesses. There's still suspects that are alive. So maybe, there can be some resolution in this case and, and you can get justice for your father after all this time. Uh, I'm curious, do you have any websites or social media or anything set up about the case where people can learn more about it or reach out to you if they have any information? I do. Um, I, I have a Facebook group. It's uh, it's a private group. Uh, it's called justice for Jimmy Townsend. And I have a uh, change, change, uh, change.org. I have a petition um, as well, I have uh, there. I've done a couple interviews with our news station. Um, just trying to get you know get the word out, get everybody knowing about it, and for people to talk, you know. And that's exactly that's exactly what's needed for this. Is yeah, more people so, wanting justice, <laughs> more people for for the the justice system to know that um i'm not i can't I, I can't be fooled because i have all the information like they do and it just it it doesn't doesn't add up you know it doesn't um it doesn't add up it one of it, it's it was so bad that the detective zambi working 
his case, told my memo that he wished he wasn't even on the case. How could a detective tell a grieving mother of her only son something like that? Because this case was so hard and it was just bad for everyone involved back then. And, you know, she she didn't take that too well at all. I don't know what yeah. parent would take that. You know, if <laughs> exactly. you're a detective, you know, it's part of the job. You've got to suck it up exactly. and, 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 and do your job. And if it bothers you, you don't tell your, you know, the victim's family, hey, I wish I wasn't even on this case. Um, so that, you know, sometimes, sometimes, unfortunately, some of the police are not always the most sensitive or they won't say the right things with, with families, but that's something that you've got to, you know, you don't expect it here for sure. But I, you know, I am curious if, if, if one, one of these people or more than one are, are listening to this somehow and they hear this, you know, what would you want to say to these people that did this after so long? You can come forward now and help yourself or you can not come forward but but i'm coming for you we're we're, I'm, we're coming for you justice will be served it is best for you to just just confess it, it would be just easier for you to just confess than for us to to go through all of the motions but they're not going to y'all are not going to because y'all are weak individuals they're they were weak-minded people that took someone's life that sh should still be here over something so little over drugs and it just it just doesn't it just doesn't it's not right it's not right you have lived your life y'all are 50 almost 60 years old some of y'all got grandkids some of y'all haven't even y'all are y'all are Y'all got kids that are the same like y'all. Some of y'all haven't learned y'all's lessons. Some of y'all are still out there doing bad things. Y'all are criminals. Y'all have been criminals. And y'all are now raising cr criminals. So set an example. Come forward. Do what's right. Change things. If people, if, if some of them has said that they have a reformed life, your not, life is not reformed. Your life is not... You're not trying to better your life by keeping secrets, by keeping your sins as a secret. Because we're everybody's about to find out who y'all are. They, they, they're going to find out who y'all are. And it's probably better for y'all to just come forward, please. Please. I, I hope you do. It sounds like you're, you're going to stick with it and be a fighter like your father was. And you're just going to hang in there until you get some answers. And I hope you do get those answers and we'll, do our part to spread awareness of the case and put links to your Facebook group and tip line and things like that in the show notes. So that if anybody out there listening does have any information might be able to help this case, they'll, they'll be able to yes, maybe share it and come forward. Yes. Uh, Crime Stoppers is 318-388-CASH um, or Monterey Police Department. Matt, Matt Smith is the detective on the case. We also have our, our DA, uh, also I have a, tomorrow, uh, I go, uh, for a meeting with our DA, our, our, uh, ADA and my detective tomorrow to find out if they're going to start putting pressure on these guys and bringing them in, or if they're not going to do anything. And if they don't do anything, then I'm going to get his case file and I'm going to take it to the next person. If they don't, I'm going to take it to the next person. I'm going to go up the ladder and I'll, I'll, I'll go as far as to the state capital if I have to, but some, this is just, uh, there's no more time for any wrongdoings from law enforcement for this to happen anymore. Uh, I believe we got, hopefully we got a good, good DA and ADA that wants to bring justice as well and not look at their political um, statue as it could hurt them or, um, you know, they just want justice, you know, because I believe that's what kind of happened back then. Yeah. Well, again, you, you sound like you're ready for the fight and uh, I, I appreciate you coming on <laughs> and, and sharing your story and your father's story. And I wish you luck getting, getting that justice.
Thank you so much for having me on. It, it truly means a lot. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.